Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. So welcome everyone to our second SNID of the year for a panel about global vaccine inequity. Um, although we come to you virtually today, our seminar series is hosted by Queen's University, which is located on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabek Nation. This territory is included in the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and more recently, Haudenosaunee, to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes, including Lake Ontario. Today, too, is the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation in Canada, a day of reflection and learning about Canada's violent relationship with Indigenous peoples here on Turtle Island. This National Day was one of the 94 calls to action arising from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was a commission chaired by the Honourable Justice Marie Sinclair, who has since become the Chancellor at Queen's University. Um, and I did want to note that Chancellor Sinclair will be speaking to our SNID audience with SNID on November 25th. I mean, I warmly invite you to attend that session to learn and think more about the TRC in Canada and also here at Queen's. So Queen's and the Office of Indigenous Initiatives are hosting a sacred fire beginning at 2 p.m., which is going to be live streamed. This SNID session has been scheduled for months, um, so we didn't want to reschedule it, but we, we will be recording. So if people are flipping over to that, this will become a CFRC podcast as well. We wanted to let you know that. Um, and we will be stopping at 2.15 to honor the minute of silence. Um, while today's panel on global vaccine inequity doesn't directly relate to settler colonial structures here on Turtle Island, our guests will be discussing ongoing colonial and imperial relations, specifically looking at the architectures of intellectual property that shape vaccine access and distribution globally. Um, and I think one thing we can think about on this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, maybe in the question and answer period, is how the Canadian nation state is reifying and reproducing these colonial and imperial forces, not only on this territory, um, but also globally through intellectual property rights infrastructure. So for instance, Canada continues to block or at least not support the TRIPS waiver proposed by South Africa and India. Um, so I think I'm urging us to potentially to also be thinking about Canada and it's how, it, how this nation state is deeply implicated in global vaccine apartheid. Um, so we have three speakers, which, we'll get right to now. Um, so each will speak for 10 minutes, then I have a couple of questions for the panel and then we'll open it up to the audience for questions. So first we have Dr. Hyo Yoon Kang, who is a senior lecturer and reader of law at the University of Kent. Dr. Kang is a cross-disciplinary scholar who works at the intersection of law, history of science and science and technology studies. Her research is on intellectual and other kinds of intangible properties thinking, for instance, of how scientists use and understand patents. Um, and she's also been writing specifically about the COVID-19 pandemic and how global intellectual property law, like TRIPS specifically, um, has facilitated vaccine nationalism and a crisis of vaccine access. Dr. Lauren Paramore is a professor in the Department of Political Studies at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. She's interested in how global health is being reconfigured as for-profit markets and philanthropic foundations are increasingly positioned as the guarantors of health. I mean, she's interested in the effects of this. 
Much of her focus has been on the struggle for HIV AIDS treatments in South Africa, but she's also been writing and thinking about COVID-19. Finally, we have Dr. Sharifa Sekalala, a reader in the School of Law at the University of Warwick in the United Kingdom. Dr. Sekalala's research looks at how law is used to manage and often exacerbate inequalities in infectious and non-infectious disease distribution. She's also interested in how human rights frameworks are used to protect the health of vulnerable populations and with what effects. Um, and she looks at the role of global institutions like the WHO in shaping global health law. So with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Kang first for about 10 minutes and then we'll go through the panel. Um, so thank you very much for inviting me and my co-panelists. Um, to this occasion. So I want to thank Caroline Prouse and the SNID for giving us the opportunity to talk about this. And I think it's wonderful that we can actually convene virtually, um, which in physical real space would have been quite difficult. So I, I'm just gonna um, show a couple of couple of slides to um, to visualize what I'm going to talk about. And can you see this? Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so I think um, I'm I was going to think about what legal geographies could really mean in this context, and um, I think you know I think this is a really striking map which many of you will be familiar with, which really shows the gross vaccine inequity, um, which is also called vaccine apartheid. This is uh, the last update from the 30th of September, and and you can really see which doses have been administered most. Um, so Canada is dark, dark green. Uh, within Europe, there are some variations, but Africa, um, on average, it's only, it's only reached 2% of the population. So there is a very, very clear um, visual evidence of the growth in inequality in vaccine distribution and dissemination. But I think what I would like to talk about here, and I don't know to what degree um, you're familiar with um, with the you know IP legal structure, the global structure, which is really conditioned by the so-called TRIPS agreement. But um, I want to really focus on what the legal structural barriers are that are causing this inequality. And I know that there is a lot of debate that perhaps the TRIPS waiver discussion is is um, distracting from the real issues, which some people argue are supply issues, are technical issues. So that's been an argument that the pharmaceutical industry has been making for a long time, um, that the real issue is not really IP, but other things. Um, and the waiver discussion is a distraction. I mean, I would just say to that, that I don't think it's a binary. So there are multiple, multiple conditions which have led to the current um, situation 18 months after the declaration of the pandemic breaking out. So um, I would just like to focus on the IP barriers which have exacerbated and to a, to a certain degree really caused um, the present gross vaccine injustice. So there are, there are a lot of different IP rights which um, contribute to this current situation. I think most people think the TRIPS waiver only covers um, waiving IP rights and patents, but um, there are also other types of IPRs which are very important, such as trade secrets. Um, trade secret is important because, for example, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, um, Pfizer has actually not filed for a patent, but it keeps secret 
the way in which it produces its vaccines, um, and it's got a technology transfer from BioNTech. Um, BioNTech has a lot of patents, which I'll show you later on. Um, there are also copyright issues. Um, we have no access to the regulatory data, which would show how exactly the vaccines would be produced. Patents are um, very much incomplete recipes. So even if we would actually have access to the patent documents because they get published, um, one would not be able to replicate the vaccine exactly in the same way. In order to do that, we also know we need know-how and the know-how is often not codified. It's not written down. It's, um, it kind of overlaps with the trade secrets in many ways, but know-how is exactly the kind of knowledge that would be very much needed in technology transfer. Um, the TRIPS waiver proposal was made exactly a year ago by India and South Africa um, because the so-called existing TRIPS flexibility, such as compulsory licensing provisions, have proven very insufficient for a pandemic situation. For example, compulsory license um, provisions only cover patents, so we would not be able to um, to share copyrighted information, we would not be able to enforce opening up of trade secrets and share know-how. Um, the waiver by the proposed waiver by India and South Africa would cover all of these and not just patents relating to vaccines. But just to give you an idea of how the compulsory licensing uh, provisions, which the EU, for example, is saying are sufficient, they just need to be tweaked are not sufficient and are deficient. Um, I just want to show you the current patent landscape in COVID vaccines. Sorry. There we go. So um, the medicine patent pool has collated um, a lot of information about the present patents that already exist in vaccines. So before that, I've shown you the multiple layers of IP rights which relate to um, COVID-19 technologies. But just in re relation to vaccines, the Medicines Patent Pool has looked at different patent applications in different jurisdictions pending. So here you have a um, table of Sinovac, which is the, um, the Chinese vaccine. And it shows, um, you know, what the legal status is. They have filed multiple patents, and they did this for every every um, WHO approved vaccine. So here you see AstraZeneca, Covaxin, um, mRNA, Moderna, uh, Pfizer, BioNTech, and so on. And it's um, so in order to to even apply for compulsory license, you would have to go through every patent and every jurisdiction and file for a compulsory license. It's it's highly highly impracticable. And it takes a very long time. Um, you might know that BioLize, which is a Canadian company, has also filed for a compulsory license um, in Canada, and, and the government still hasn't approved it. Um, Bolivia has actually entered an agreement with BioLize trying to, um, trying to import BioLize um, vaccines after it would be produced, but um, because the Canadian government has actually not approved the compulsory license application, it's still pending. Um, so, sorry. So here you have an overview of all of the patent applications and 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 approved patents and patent application. It's not published. It's not published for eighteen months. So we don't know actually what is actually being applied for, which is another uh, problem in terms of the lack of transparency. Um, 
This is a very interesting work um, by Kilic and Gaviria, and they've looked at the current licensing agreement of patents, um, just specifically the mRNA patent. And you can see with this kind of network visualization how many how many different agreements there are. So in order to to apply for compulsory licenses for any of them, you are you are actually already um, looking at a very, very complicated patent thicket, um, which is hard to break. So the current TRIPS flexibilities um, are highly inflexible. Um, I just wanted to give you an overline of where we are at the moment, um, how it started, because the IP issues and barriers were very clear from the very start of the pandemic. Um, you know, in March 2020, Costa Rica has called for a voluntary pool of IP because they could already foresee that IP tickets are there and that knowledge sharing would be very difficult. Then only a, a month later, COVAX was launched. Um, and, and this might be uh, interpreted perhaps as a response to the call for open voluntary pool of sharing, which Costa Rica had actually called a month earlier. Um, then a month later, CTAP was launched, which would be based on the medicines patent pool. Um, so far, no one has volunteered to share technology and knowledge through CTAP. Then in October 2020, India and South Africa proposed a waiver of the TRIPS agreement um, and waive all IP rights for the duration of the pandemic. We know that a year later, we are still um, basically where we are. Um, nothing has happened on that front. Um, then in April 2021, WHO has agreed to um, build mRNA vaccine technology transfer hub. We know today that there is such a track technology transfer hub um, built or installed in South Africa. So far, none of the none of the patent holders or trade secret holders have agreed to participate in it. We also know that in South America, um, Argentina and Brazil have been chosen to um, as the locations of uh, WHO mRNA vaccine technology transfer hub as well. But so far, none of the private companies have volunteered to share the knowledge. In May 2021, there was a big um, excitement because the US has expressed its support for an IP waiver for COVID-19 vaccines, but only for the vaccines only. Then after a lot of meetings, um, text-based negotiations were supposed to start on the TRIPS waiver, but that got um, kind of intercrossed or it got interfered with an EU counterproposal, which um, just proposes amendments to the current compulsory license provisions. Um, to date, um, EU, Switzerland and UK are still blocking the TRIPS waiver proposal, which um, would be really the most proportional and most, well, I think the most pragmatic solution to all of these IP blockages. Um, we made a very strong case why the trip um, waiver proposal would be a would be a pragmatic and a proportional response to the current pandemic situation. Um, me and my co-authors, um, it was published in May, and I think it was read very favorably by um, a lot of IP academics as well. So we also initiated a letter which was signed by over 180 IP specialists and academics all over the world, which makes a case in support of the TRIPS waiver. This was quite important to us because there was a 
misconception that a lot of the IP academics were against the waiver, and that has something to do with certain IP academics um, who have a lot of influence on the EU policy for making that case. So we felt it was very important to show that the scholarly um, opinion on this is very much divided. Um, so this is really a snapshot of, um, of the discussions that we've been having um, amongst the IP scholars. And um, I think I'll end there and I'm happy to take questions later on. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. King, for that overview of the landscape. Um, we can next move to Dr. Paramore. Thanks, uh, Carolyn. Uh, thanks for having me. And um, uh, it's it's really good to listen to Dr. King because the explanation is so elegant and, and one wishes the simplicity with which she presents the case for the TRIPS waiver were um, accepted. Uh, by the countries blocking the waiver. So EU, Switzerland, the UK being um, at the forefront, as you mentioned, Carolyn, that the Canadian position is kind of ambiguous, opaque, um, despite a lot of advocacy that the endorsement should be explicit, but um, here we are. So um, uh, since Dr. Kang has covered a lot of the ground um, relating to the IP landscape, I think I'll speak a little bit more schematically um, so I'm based in Cape Town, South Africa, and you know, usually Africa is referred to as the dark continent. And on the map that Dr. Kang shared, it's the inverse, it's the light continent. And that's because in terms of vaccine saturation, the, the um, progress we've made on vaccination has been so low, right? And that's the effect of a, um, a planned scarcity. And, and so I'll, I'll speak a little bit more about that. Um, also to say that I'm speaking in my personal capacity, but a lot of the work that I've done on COVID-19 and vaccines um, has been done uh, as a member of the People's Health Movement. So uh, in particular with colleagues in South Africa, uh, South Korea and India, where we were participating in a project um, that was looking at barriers to accessing COVID-19 diagnostics, therapeutics, uh, and inevitably vaccines. Um, so. Uh, the first point I'd like to make is that we've been here before. Um, and most strikingly, I think 20 years ago, almost exactly 20 years ago. Uh, and I'm of course referring to the struggle for access to antiretrovirals. It resulted in um, the Doha declaration that was supposed to be an unambiguous endorsement um, of the fact that the TRIPS framework should not block um, states ability to promote and protect public health. Um, and as we've seen over the past year and a half, uh, the Doha Declaration um, rings hollow in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I will also say that there's another way in which we've been here before. Um, and uh, what I'm referring to is, is a, much older, a much older tradition. Um, Vijay Prashad, who's a historian, describes it as a third worldist uh, tradition. And that's the political project of changing the structure of the global political economy um, so that um, it's structured to deliver justice. Uh, it's structured to deliver uh, democratic accountability and oversight. It's structured to 
deliver a kind of world in which people can flourish. Um, and so here I speak about flourishing in terms of the right to health as it's recognized in General Comment 14, which is the right to the highest attainable level of health and not merely the absence of illness. And, and so when we look at that third worldist project, you know, one of the interventions that's really, really famous is the declaration on a new international economic order that the General Assembly adopts in 1974. Um, it's designed to promote, amongst other things, technology sharing, increased manufacturing bases in the global south. Um, and, and though it's adopted by the Assembly, it never really goes anywhere. And so, a Gramscian might say that that's an effect of the balance of forces on the ground, right? And so this leads me to my second point, which is that the, um, the multilateral system as it stands has failed. So I think, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of planned obsolescence because, you know, I had to recently get a new cell phone and I hate replacing my cell phone because it's, there's so much stuff, right? So it becomes kind of like a quite intimate object. There's all kinds of photos and memories. And anyway, so I have to replace it, not because it's broken, but um, because the software updates don't work anymore, right? And so when I think about the multilateral system, um, but also when I think of the global political economy, this idea of planned obsolescence is striking to me because it seems like uh, historically, for a very long time, we've been living in a world that kind of plans for uh, what Foucault calls letting die. So there are groups of people um, that by design, and so I would say that the, um, the TRIPS agreement is, is one of these designs, that by design are left um, in this category of people that can be discarded or left to die. Uh, and so this is striking to me because it is by design. Right, so this is a kind of planned obsolescence um, and we're living in a multilateral system that claims solidarity, but doesn't uh, deliver it. Um, and so taking a note from the feminists, um, you know, to, to speak from, from personal experience, I have two small children in my household. So a lot of my day is um, spent saying sharing is caring and it becomes a platitude. Right, but I think uh, in the context of COVID-19, we're faced with a political decision to make around multilateralism. Um, and, and so when I say sharing, I mean, uh, this is a process of sharing experiences, a, a process of holding a kind of intersubjective community, uh, a sentiment of being bound by the same fate, and that is a political act. And it's a sentiment that produces, one hopes, solidarity. Right, which is a, a collective struggle for a common objective, even though people are very differently positioned within that struggle. So it's not um, we all benefit, which is often how market-based solutions are described in these cases. So that's the sharing part. I think the caring part for me is important to mention um, because again, it, it, it sounds glib to say we want to build a more caring world. But perhaps to rephrase and to say that I think what COVID-19 has exposed, particularly in the absence of vaccines, is that caring is a labor, right? It's a labor that's largely invisible. It's a labor that's largely undervalued by markets, which is seen as um, reimbursing productive work rather than social reproduction work or sustaining life. Um, and it's a labor that's essential. And I think COVID-19 exposes this uh, when we look at our health systems 
right? And so, so part of um, why people promote access to vaccines is, is not because it cures COVID, it's because it reduces the pressure on hospitals and health systems that have uh, historically suffered from underinvestment. And it also reduces, if we look at the, the formal sector of the economy, it, it reduces the pressure on medical workers, the bulk of whom at the lower levels of the occupational hierarchy are women. Uh, of course, we know I'm assuming most of the people in, in this um, conversation are professional women. Um, and, and with the shift to working in the, from home and in the home, I think we've also seen that the kind of uh, social reproduction work that's required to keep a sense of normalcy going in the context of COVID um, weighs very heavily on the labor time of women. Um, and, and so I say that because I want to make a third point, um, which is that IP is not a gender neutral framework or it's not a framework that has gender neutral effects. And I think what COVID-19 has uh, illustrated quite starkly is the disproportionate negative impact that a lack of technology sharing, a lack of um, intellectual property sharing is having on the socioeconomic status of women and on the professional lives of women, those who have professional lives. So, uh, you know, I think one of the things to think about in terms of vaccine inequity is not only does it um, op uh, overburden the health system, uh, not only is it something that's um, planned and therefore avoidable, but also that um, it's, it's a pandemic that, you know, I mean, I don't want to be um, despondent, <laughs> but I think it is a pandemic that is going to set back women, um, a, a generation of women, in terms of the level of socioeconomic welfare. Um, and I think particularly so in regions of the world where um, women and the broader populations don't have access to vaccines. Um, so that's the third point I wanted to make. I think the fourth point, um, yeah, so two more points and then I'll stop. The, the fourth point I wanted to make is that um, COVAX is deeply problematic, but in the context of this um, dysfunctional multilateral system, I think there's something um, that, that is um, worth um, recognizing and building upon in terms of its instinct, which is that um, in a public health emergency, we can't have bilateral procurement and assume that it's going to result in equitable distribution of essential medical technologies. Um, and, and so as a provocation, I want to say that one of the things we need to think about in terms of not only access to essential medicines, essential medical technologies, but access to all essential goods and services is the way in which we structure agreements so that we um, forego an emphasis on bilateral agreements that privilege um, certain markets uh, and focus instead on multilateral uh, procurement, truly multilateral procurement mechanisms, which COVAX didn't end up being. But uh, these pooled procurement mechanisms that don't prioritize access to, to privileged markets, but fair and equitable dis distribution to people, right? Um, that actually require these resources for the purposes of social reproduction to sustain life. Um, and then, Maybe um, the, the final point I want to make is um, 
and this is again about COVAX and it's connected to this point that it didn't in fact end up being a, a truly multilateral mechanism is that uh, COVAX is one of many examples of uh, public health partnerships. Uh, and these first really kind of debuted and, and became um, success stories in the context of the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, so these global public private partnerships, um, I think are problematic because quite often they, um, well, so COVAX, let's be concrete, is an example of one of these partnerships where decision-making is largely outside of WHO, which is a member state-based organization. Um, decisions um, are taken by private entities and, and typically um, uh, foundations, uh, governments in the global north and uh, global south governments are by and large excluded from COVAX decision-making structures. And so, you know, to borrow a phrase from uh, James Ferguson, these global public health partnerships become a kind of anti-politics machine, right? So the conversation shifts from democratic decision-making uh, to a conversation about technique and bureaucracy. And I think um, increasingly in global health, the conversation shifts to financing. So financing, and we see this with universal health coverage, which is distinct from universal health care, but financing then becomes something that's seen as a guarantor of access. And of course, concurrently, it's a guarantor of markets that get created because you're building a base of consumers that have the financing to um, access the medical products that otherwise they wouldn't have had access to. And so my final point is that um, this idea of financing as, as access is anti-democratic, it's deeply problematic. Um, and, and it needs to be something that we challenge in the context of um, COVAX, in the context of universal health coverage discourses. Um, and I'm going to leave it at that. Thanks. Thank you so much, Dr. Paramore. You brought up so much that, I mean, my, my head is spinning, spinning. I already have a lot I want to ask both of you. Um, but we'll move quickly into Dr. Sekalala, um, and then we'll, we'll open up for questions at the end. So Dr. Sekalala. Uh, so thank you very much and to like two fantastic speakers who come before me and met some of the points that I wanted to make, which is always nice. So I think that they've helped elucidate many of the things that I wanted to say. Um, so I guess I will take a historic perspective to the way in which I see this crisis. I've put up two papers that we've written um, on race in different ways around this crisis, one on colonialism and another on intersectionality. And so I'll try and think about the ways in which in some ways there's been a racialization of this crisis as you pointed at the beginning, Carl, and the ways in which we are now seeing these inequalities perhaps globally. So we started off seeing them very much at the national level and you're now seeing them uh, globally. And for me, these, this trend has a huge colonial history, both in the way in which law is constructed, but also in its implications, in the way in which countries recognize both vaccines, who should get vaccines, but also who isn't vaccinated. And this is part of a broader history as um, Lauren states out in global health. So global health has a huge history of colonialism and pandemics and infections especially have always thought about um, this kind of racialized idea of pandemics coming from the outside in order to threaten 
um, kind of what we traditionally now call the global north. And you see this in many ways, I think, if you're a scholar of global history. Um, so you seek the history of clinical trials and the way in which they get displaced and taken to the third world. You see the humanitarianism in um, global health and kind of treating infections as if they were humanitarian crisis instead of kind of um, systemic problems, which I think is really interesting. But also we've seen that in vaccines in the past. So if you look at people like Packard and Anderson, they've really done great work on thinking about the vaccine itself as a tool of imperialism. So in the past, you thought about it as something that helped you to get productive labor. And I think you very much see that logic in some of the things that we are having now. The second thing that you have as well in terms of a tool of, um, of colonialism is very much this model of charity that Lauren talks about that then imbues COVAX as a model now. So vaccines are something, if you think about an imperialist system, that you give to other people as charity in order to make them well, as part of your civilizing mission. And we are seeing the logics of that being replicated in the current system. And the current TRIPS system to me can also be understood as a continuation of this, both colonial construct, but also neo-colonial neo construct. Whether global, where global IP rights, whether in TRIPS or subsequent TRIPS plus agreements, are part of this wider legal system which facilitates the neo-colonial project. So some people cannot be trusted in order to manufacture in their own right and therefore need licensing. So you have a logic that, there, that is being facilitated by this regime as um, as Hugh pointed out in her presentation, because you have this system where some people are making the drugs and other people are expected to receive them. And the entire system has been predicated exactly on that. And so we've seen that in the past uh, with AIDS, we've seen it with TRIPS plus agreements that came up. And I think it's very much a sense of IP as something that commodifies medicines that are essential for human survival. Uh, and um, really kind of displaces certain people and peoples across the world. Um, and so I kind of like to think about this both in terms of the inequity that we had in the first presentation, which was fantastic. When you look at that map, it's really clear. But also that that logic also fits in at the national level. You see national inequities in terms of who gets vaccinated and who doesn't. So people who are deemed to be productive get prioritized and people who are not then get um, deprioritized. But I guess the other geographic inequality you can see is the sense of the ways in which these vaccines are going to, in some ways, um, really temper who moves across the globe and who doesn't. So if you have these regions that are unvaccinated, that means that entire groups of people then are trapped by legal structures. And you see, for instance, in the past week, the UK government's decision to recognize people as kind of unvaccinated if they've been vaccinated in Latin America, Africa, and South Asia has been greeted with dismay as being kind of discriminatory. But I think that for me, it's part of a much broader and systemic thing around suspicion, both in terms of who is deemed vaccinated and who's deemed unvaccinated. So both in terms of the structures as we have seen, but also that even when you get 
vaccinated, there is a sense that there's still that geographical boundary that does not recognize the vaccine that you have. And we see law there doing a lot of work in terms of how that is being established. And of course, we have to realize that this is made worse because you have people who took part in clinical trials in many parts of this world. So in some ways they've contributed to the IP system by validating it. They become clinical trial subjects. We now have a vaccine that is broadly recognized. So they fit into the IP system, but then they become excluded by it. And so I think that this is deeply problematic. So they become excluded in two ways. So firstly, that they can't afford the vaccine. Their countries can't afford the vaccine because it's expensive, because as Lawrence said, bilateral agreements make it expensive. But then secondly, that then they can't still travel because they're not considered to have the proper vaccine. And so what work does decolonization do for me in this space? So for me, decolonization enables us to understand much more structurally the relationships that are taking place and to critique the positions of power and dominant culture that we see in the IP system itself as a form of reproduction, where we see a reproduction both of knowledge, a reproduction of access across the world, but also a reproduction of health outcomes. And I think that that uh, is really important. And so I then therefore want to think about decolonial, like decoloniality there as something that helps us to not only think about this system, so kind of to describe it, but also to think about ways in which we can challenge it uh, from below. And Lauren rightly states that there have been many of these uh, epistemic struggles around AIDS in the past. And so I think that this, if we think about it as one of these other movements, then we can have that moment of challenge. And uh, I think the people's vaccine movement has done tremendous work um, we've also done tremendous work, actually, when you think about challenging the patent system itself in this moment of time. And I think that all this is uh, critical. So going forward, I am going to suggest um, three very short things. So the first one is uh, rethinking solidarity and what that solidarity means. And I'm going to agree and disagree with Lauren. So I believe uh, that COVAX should not be the way in which we think about um, COVAX should not be the way in which we think about access. And I really think that we should use the language of reparations and reparations there gives us something more than the charity model of COVAX because it enables us to think about ways in which we can entrench um, manufacturing in places, but also try and dismantle the intellectual property system as we have it. The second thing that I want, I, I think a decolonial approach to human rights here can help us to do is to really think about the cooperation. And I love Lauren's fantastic presentation on the commercialization of health. But I think here we really need to unpick the obligations that corporations themselves have. So it's interesting to me that we make corporations look like people, they act like people, they have the rights of people, they go to constitutional courts, but none of the obligations that people do. And I think that we need to do more uh, in terms of challenging corporations. So Bakshi has done some really good work around kind of the ways in which human rights themselves have changed and become very friendly to the market. And I think that we have a point in time here of creating this challenge. And the third uh, and last thing is to think about human rights here as emancipatory. 
and ways in which they uh, help us to look at suffering. And clearly here we see multiple forms of suffering. And to think about the ways in which we can engage with rights here in order to challenge um, some of these systems. So the Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health, um, who's South African, Talang Mofukeng, has been really instrumental in really making decolonization as part a critical part of her mission. And I really think that we should think about this as a critical part of moving forward when we think about both the human rights system, but also access to medicines more generally. Thanks. Thank you so much, Dr. Sekalala. Um, I love your decolonial approach and also just the urgency with which all three of you have spoken here. Um, I think in, in Canada, I mean, the conversation now in Canada is around getting a third dose of vaccines. And in some respects, I find the conversation around vaccine inequity in Canada very nationalistic and is very much focused on kind of national patterns of inequity. But there's been very little to me critical discourse of, of kind of the global inequity and also how Canada is implicated in that. So thank you all for speaking to, to those global dynamics that I know a lot of our audience will be glad to have learned a little bit more about. Um, so I had sent you some questions earlier that I had, but just in hearing you speak, I also have other questions that have arisen. Um, and one of them goes back to what Dr. Paramore was speaking about in terms of, I think she mentioned Gramsci. Um, and one of the things that I am always interested in when thinking about TRIPS is that TRIPS was not inevitable, right? Like the fact that intellectual property would be part of trade was very much a push from like American and European pharmaceutical and other kinds of um, like technology companies, right? So it wasn't inevitable that TRIPS would become that which governs vaccines, but it has been. And, and I guess I wonder, like the waiver in one respect is about waiving, waiving trips, but it's not necessarily undoing trips. And so I'm wondering like how, how naturalized this discourse of trips and intellectual property has become and how to kind of maybe un, undo that naturalization, um, both materially and maybe also ideologically so that it's no longer like the common sense in which we think about um, access. Um, and then what would that mean in terms of having to like dismantle or work outside the WTO? Because I think the WTO works through consensus, right? So it requires every single body or every single member nation to agree to something which obviously hasn't been working. It's, we're still talking about the TRIPS waiver a year later. Um, so that, I mean, those are just some provocations. There's not actual question. I haven't formulated or elucidated any clear questions there, but I'm just wondering if you could speak about that naturalization of intellectual property and, um, and of the WTO in ways that maybe like civil society and, and people's health movements and that sort of things have, have tried to denaturalize those mechanisms. That's for anyone. Yeah, so uh, I, I, I will go first. Um, so in some ways, um, I so the people who believe in decolonization kind of say kind of decolonization is not a metaphor. So even tax works around the idea that we shouldn't use it as a shorthand for social justice. And in some ways, it involves us radically rethinking the system. And so that's always been a challenge to me, uh, both um, and this, I think, is both in terms of the ways in which we have all been taught, so that I would like to think of the law as something sacred and uh, that it gives life meaning. And so that's a challenge to 
both teachers, but also to students that I think that the ways in which we think about the law sometimes are unhelpful. We think about it as a system that we all almost always want to work through the parameters. But when you think about any other social justice systems, there's been a lot of work that has been on, for instance, civil disobedience and what that could look like. So what could civil disobedience look like in this space? And that again is a provocation for us to think differently of the kinds of radical things that we would like for a world in which we cannot achieve consensus because there is a system that where we're going to be held at ransom by four states or five states. And, and so I think it's trying to think both intellectually about that project. So challenging um, journals. <laughs> so I've had quite a few problems with journals where people are like, but intellectual property has all these amazing things. And it seems to me that you want to get rid of it. And the third one is to think about alternatives and what those alternatives to, would look like. So what do alternatives or thinking outside the system look like within this space? Should we um, try and shame people um, into suing us anyway, or I don't know. So ideas around civil disobedience, I think might be helpful and what it could look like might be really helpful. I can go next if that's okay. I think um, the problem with the trips is, it's not just trips. So I think um, what me and some colleagues have called IP theology really runs deep and um, it's the belief that without IP, we wouldn't have innovation. Um, you know, there are a lot of historical studies as well as economic, political ones, which have shown that IP is often resulting in the opposite, that it actually hinders innovation. So I think we really need to work on, um, on, on correcting this mistaken belief, which has no foundation. So I think there's a lot of pedagogical work to do. Um, and I think it's also his, it's helpful to historicize IP. I mean, it has not always existed before in the present shape. The TRIPS is only about 20 years old. And before that, we had a much more fragmented international IP system where people had, well, nations had more um, leeway in adjusting to their own um, needs and um, and in developmental stages. The other thing I think which is really important to bear in mind is that IP is like there is something very strange going on, not just within the legal realm, but also in the cultural realm where people think that IP innovation technology are somehow all related. And it's this kind of big mishmash of conflations, which we really need to disentangle. And I think it's not just in the legal realm, but I think political and cultural I mean, you know, especially with the what people call knowledge economy and technology, these things get all intermeshed. And I think this is also where humanities are really helpful to to help us to um, to really see through the rhetoric which the law is doing, because here um, the law is clearly wrong and the law is actually a wrong law and it's not helping at the moment. So I think um, this is. Um, there is a lot of political, but also educational work to be done. Yes. Yeah, so yes, I agree with with everything that um, that's been said. Um, so I mean, I want to to pick up on Sharifa's point about um, colonialism and then decoloniality, and I, I think one of the things to think about 
uh, is um, that the multilateral system with which we're kind of stuck is, um, is something that gets invented in the 1940s, right? Presumably after a, a global crisis, a world crisis. Now, some have said that COVID-19 is actually the first truly global crisis, not the second world war, the first world war. But it's something we get stuck with. Um, and I think one of the things to remember about the current system is that it gets created at a moment in time when actually colonialism and empire is the norm. Right? And the Atlantic Charter gets written in a way where free trade is presumed to be one of the positive kind of side effects should the allies win the war of that war, but it's free trade within an imperial economy. Right? So this is, this is where we are. Um, and I think perhaps in some ways that's um, politically, that's part of the reason why the system has been so hard to change because it wasn't configured by the people most adversely affected by it. Um, and the way it's been codified, so for example, you know, there's the General Assembly, but it can be um, overruled, right? By certain states that have veto power. So these are the kinds of ways in which um, inclusivity gets circumvented um, and it's inclusivity dominated by the few, right? So, so I think that's one point to make. I mean, I think the other point to make is um, that it is kind of shocking to me um, how normalized claims around uh, intellectual property or kind of trips-based claims around intellectual property have become. Um, so, so, you know, TRIPS, for example, does this thing where it says you can commodify life itself, seeds. I mean, that's literally what it allows. It allows for the privatization of life. And, and this is something we accept as, as a normal routine part of, of everyday life. Um, but, but I also think there's a way in which, um, so that law becomes more conservative, but there's a way in which laws that, that are deemed to be progressive in the 1940s and, and you know, in this colonial moment when they get created. So for example, laws around refugees and asylum seekers that, that seem to be progressive when they get invented, that these progressive laws, again, get kind of short-circuited or circumvented in the present moment because perhaps brown people that shouldn't be claiming these rights, um, poor people that shouldn't be claiming these rights, um, that these are then people that fall into these presumably uncontroversial legal categories that have become stigmatized to such an extent that um, you know, many people find it impossible to make use of this legal right that supposedly is, is to be endorsed. So I think there is a problem at, at the level of, of kind of culture, right? And so, so I mean, I do want to clarify that I'm not a, a fan of Kovac Sharifa, <laughs> but, but I, the point I was trying to make is that one of the, the things that's lacking is this kind of sentiment of solidarity, right? So there's not this emotional kind of, if you look at refugees, asylum seekers, Kovacs, whatever it is, um, so we don't have the sentiment part of it. And so maybe what then we need to do is design institutions that force us to share. And maybe institutions that say no more bilaterals. Maybe that's the one way to force that conversation. At the same time, power is a reality. So you might be able to make the law or the institution, but the reality of power politics 
probably means that it will be circumvented somehow. So I don't know. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I do have a couple other questions, but I thought I would open it up to see if there are any questions from the audience at this point, or if the panelists have questions for each other, that is also fair game and often results in good conversation. Are there any questions floating out there? I mean, oh, Matthew, yes, go ahead. I think I need to unmute you one second here. Um, you know, when I was young, sometimes on picket lines, especially when unions were um, very active, and uh, we used to sing a, a chant, round and round the picket line, round and round we go. I wish I had a, a loaf of bread. I reckon, I wish I had a loaf of bread. I reckon I'm a red. Anyway, a lot of what we're saying is uh, saying that the whole the capitalist system is really question. Second thing I want to say is I'm very active in the health coalition and we have a rally on the fourth. It's all related, by the way. If you think about what you're saying, it's all related about the health system and what it's doing and how it's all tied with it. Anyway, I won't take much time. I'm going to say we have a rally on the October 4th at four o'clock. There's a day of action across the province for long-term care. Long-term care with the private system has been a disaster because of the profit mode of driving everything. And so on the 4th at 4 o'clock, we're going to be at, for an hour at Concession and Princess holding up signs saying, remember long-term care. Now, what I really want to ask is, I'm also acting in the Cuban-Canada Friendship Association. And Cuba has produced its own vaccines. And I understand that it's uh, in the process of trying to get it uh, more available to the rest of the world. Can you comment on Cuba is an example of an, an alternative and comment on the quality of its vaccines. I, I, can, I can answer to that. Um, so Cuba has, uh, has successfully developed a vaccine and um, the latest that I've read is that it has exported its vaccines, started sharing it with, um, with Vietnam and um, Iran. Um, I don't know to what degree that involves just vaccine um, sale and bilateral agreements or whether that also involves tech transfer. Um, I could not see that, but um, I think it's a, it's, it's a promising development. Does anyone else have knowledge of the Cuban vaccine? Yeah, I don't really, I've, I've heard as much as that's been said here. Um, we actually, our next SNID we, is a panel about Cuba, so we might hear more about that situation next week. Um, are there any other questions? Um, so I guess one of the things that I wanted to say is that I'm, I'm quite shocked, so in some ways, Hyo Kyun's um, um, intervention on how trips has sipped into cultural appropriate and it kind of you have a discourse. I'm always shocked by, in some ways, people who care deeply about health systems, because most North Americans, most Europeans care deeply about health systems uh, together with the rest of the world, but we don't realize their actual costs. 
And I'm always quite shocked by this. So for instance, with the vaccines where you kind of have these figures of the 93 billion that was put, so this was state money that was given to pharmaceutical companies in order to produce vaccines. So we gave private companies 93 billion euros in order to produce vaccines. And this is not, uh, so this isn't counting all the other things that you threw in. So we allowed them to build without planning permission. We gave them concessions where we bought stuff without ever knowing whether it would work or not. And I think that we need to do better in some ways at communicating some of these costs, that these are the costs both of like commercial interests, but these are the costs of the intellectual property system that we think is so great and is so innovative that this is what it costs. Because um, I'm just always shocked by the fact that this is somehow underneath the radar, that we don't really kind of ascribe that as a cost of the current system. We just think it's innovative. It produces the stuff that we want really quickly without thinking about all the other costs of the things that it, it doesn't do, but also costs everybody. So if you think about that money, for instance, and social care, you could like you could buy a lot of social care for 93 billion euros. And so, yeah, so I think that our narratives um, have to change. And I think we can start to chip away at some of these broader narratives. And like both of the panelists like do really great work at doing this. I enjoy reading their work because that's I think the work that um, is really interesting. Can I just comment and respond to what Dr. Asakalala has said? I think what's really astonishing in this particular pandemic situation with the public funding that has gone into the development of the vaccines is the patent system was never ever intended to um, to reward monopoly rights for public money. So the patent system always rested on the, actually it's a mythical narrative, but that's a justification that private risk and investment could be rewarded, you know, provided it fulfills certain requirements for 20 years of limited monopoly. We know that this, it's, it's a myth, it's been abused multiple times, but in present situation, it's absolutely, um, it's absolutely outrageous that public funding has led to these inventions, but the benefits are actually reaped by private companies and private companies cannot be regulated by a multilateral system um, such as the TRIPS at the moment. So we are being completely held hostage by private interests funded with public money and um, the global public is just held hostage. So um, I think particularly in this situation, the, the patent narrative has really turned out to be very hollow. Yeah, so maybe if I can build on it, I, I mean, I think there's these two words, um, right, cost and the risk. And, and I think it's quite interesting the, the way that a risk is understood in the context of the pandemic as both panelists have pointed out, is that, you know, what's risky is companies um, losing their investments in research and development. What's risky is them losing shareholder value or um, their sunk costs. So, so that's what we think of as a risk. And then in some ways, the state, the government, national governments become in insurance against those risks, right? And then strangely enough, 
not getting access to medicine, that's not perceived as a risk. Right? So one could say, oh, actually, you know, the risk is that these medicines get produced and, and not everyone that needs them gets them. So it's almost as if um, it's almost as if the public good is completely outside of the conversation when we think about a risk. Um, and, and that the costs, right? So as Shalupa pointed out, this idea of cost is that it gets, the cost gets privatized by private individuals uh, and the risk governments ensure private corporations against the risks of failure, which actually in, in the capitalist model, that's par for the course, right? That if you make a bet on inventing something, there is a risk that you lose your investment. Um, and, and this is something I think that we saw also with the 2008 financial crisis, um, that, that risk and cost was skewed in this way to favor a private enterprise. So I guess I'm saying there's a continuity, yeah. True, and I think maybe the other thing too, to, uh, so for me that's really important, is that that idea of governments insuring stuff is not neutral. So we're all paying for governments to insure stuff. And I've often been saying this. So um, in the UK, there was this huge thing around, we have a very proactive government and it bought vaccines and the same thing in Canada. So these proactive governments bought vaccines in bilateral agreements. And I'm like, when we pay more for vaccines that should be cheaper, we are taking money from antenatal care, we're taking money from children, we are taking money from elderly care. So it's this is this idea that there is this extra money that is insurance money is such a falsehood because that's all our money that should be doing something else. And without it, we're then going to have to have either more money or more, there's something is going to have to change. And I think that there is something there about restructuring the conversation around governments as insurance and who's, so it's not the government that is insuring, it's all the people that are insuring. And it's actually poor people are disproportionately insuring private companies. And I think that we, yeah, we need to kind of, yeah, identify that a bit better. Well, on that note, um, to me, there's an issue around transparency as well as how, of how much is being paid for these sorts of things. So the fact that like Canada's contracts and bilateral agreements with different companies is not the, the, the value of those is not known or it, or it takes a while for that, that knowledge to get out there that protects both the government so that they're not held accountable for the amount that they're spending on all of these agreements. But it also means that other countries don't know what what some countries are paying for vaccines and therefore it creates this very weird, untransparent landscape of um, evaluation of, of what these, these actually cost and what different people are, different countries are paying for them, um, which also protects the companies. Yeah. And, and then there's all sorts of other stuff around indemnity so that it's it's not only that risk, we also protect against any future risks of vaccines going wrong. And so there's like multiple levels of untransparency in the system where you are using this like intellectual property regime in order to protect yourself against various risks. Um, so yeah, so they're, they're kind of at many scales and levels. I just want to ask um, ask you 
all of you whether you think that I mean, given the complete deadlock at the WTO at the moment, um, whether you think it's time to think about um, additional strategies, I wouldn't say alternative. I think the WTO battle is something which will be necessary also for the long term um, future, but just kind of really try to shift um, the focus perhaps on on the immediate things that could be done at the moment. Um, I don't know whether you had any ideas about it. I mean, like one thing that I was always fascinated by is how um, how scientists are all complicit with this current situation in the sense that um, there I haven't really seen any scientist defect um, or leak um, information about how to make mRNA vaccines um, will offer help in that sense. So I understand that a lot of scientists have non-disclosure agreements, um, they're contractually bound, but um, what about university scientists? Um, are universities also behaving like corporations? So um, I don't know, I mean, I always thought there would be some kind of scientific solidarity um, uh, in this present situation, but I haven't really seen it so far. So I find that really interesting. A great idea for civil disobedience. <laughs> so we don't even need the sciences. We just need the middleman because uh, we just need a, a good enough hacker in the middle. So, <laughs> I mean, I will say that I've been thinking a lot about the role of universities. Um, so, and I and I say that within the context of. Um, like a funding squeeze in South Africa, but I think globally also. And then, you know, colleagues are under huge pressure to raise research funds, research projects. And of course, in the natural sciences, and, you know, so there's an intellectual property office at my university. And, and it goes along with a kind of whole set of assumptions around, um, I suppose, com complying with existing norms and I'm not speaking specifically about my university, but just generally the, the assumption is that, <clears throat> that we're producing knowledge and on one level that's seen as a kind of um, an experience where you build on prior knowledge and you share, but in actual fact, there are all these legal requirements that circumvent, right, that, that sharing. And then, you know, on the issue of trials, as Sharifa has pointed out, there is this peculiar way in which um, universities in, in kind of uh, middle-income countries or regional hegemons get positioned as the research sites um, for, for doing kind of trials and so on for bigger corporations, bigger foundations, um, and not necessarily always with um, a promise that there will be long-term care or access to successful um, products that result from the trials. And so that was one of the critiques of, of one of the local vaccine trials that that wasn't negotiated in advance. Um, and I mean, so yes, to, to agree with um, Hugh Yoon, that this is something, I mean, this is one of the practical steps we can take, I think, at universities, um, which is to challenge that kind of orthodoxy. Are there any other questions? We have about five minutes left. I'm interested in one of the points that 
Dr. Sekalala made, which I think connects with this idea of um, where testing is happening and where the clinical trials are happening. But it's about this idea to, of using the language of reparations. Um, so I wonder, like, is this happening? Because I personally haven't, I haven't heard that, but I'm just interested in, in if this language is being used by whom um, and what might that look like in terms of organizing? Yeah. So I think there's some people starting to use the language of reparations, mainly in some ways to oppose the logic of COVAX. Uh, and because I think COVAX in its current incarnation is just not very good. So you have the problems Lauren identified of a dual track where some people are buying their own vaccines. And so it's always going to get medicines late. Increasingly, it's becoming a dumping ground where people are realizing their vaccines are about to expire and then sending them to places in instances where, no where there's no capacity, it's very untransparent. So it has lots of issues. And I think that there've been lots of people trying to think about what reparations could look like in this space. Um, and part of that has been trying to think about manufacturing, but that in itself um, has lots of problems. So you might have a manufacturing have, as he can said, but you don't have the ingredients in order to make the vaccine. So, but at least maybe it removes one part of the argument because at the beginning of COVAX, so I remember attending a really high level meeting where everybody was like, there is no manufacturing capacity anywhere. And so this was one of the reasons that COVAX was established. And so perhaps we are chipping away at that. Uh, and, and then, yeah, so there's, there's lots of, I think, um, in some ways that that also removes the idea of charity from huge corporations of companies just thinking they'll give a certain percentage of drugs. Because I think once you change the language reparations, you, I think, create legal obligations around how those reparations should look like. So it's much more structured and it's not just charity based, which I think is interesting. But then you also then have structures around the things that you might want to do differently in order, not just for this crisis, but suddenly for the next crisis, which as, so I'm a global health lawyer and we kind of think this is inevitable. There will be a next one. It's just kind of a question of when, so, yeah. So I just want to add that um, the term reparation I find really fascinating. I think uh, also not just reparation, but also repair. Um, in the sense of um, what uh, Lauren had talked about earlier about plant obsolescence. I think we need a right to repair in response to plant obsolescence. And I just want to point out that actually the objective of TRIPS in Article 7 says it's, it's promotion of technological innovation and transfer and dissemination of technology. So just going back to what we have as a legal text, treaty text right now, and, and see how that article was completely disregarded in favor of other, um, in favor of the IP, IP protections, I think that would be really useful because um, it, it just hasn't happened. So um, it, it's not, it, it would be a rebalancing act, but I think it would also repair the brokenness of the implementation of the trips at the moment. I mean, so, so maybe also to, to build on that, it's um, this idea of repair. So if I take it back to my earlier comment about the third world, this project, and the, one of the things that's fascinating about the Bandung conference in 1955 and a lot of the work coming out of that 
is that it it is a kind of the third world project is a project to repair the humanity of, of people that were dehumanized by imperialism and colonialism. And one of the things that's interesting about that process of repairing is exchange and mobility. So cultural exchange, knowledge sharing, physical mobility of people of the, then it's called the third world. Now we would say global south. So it's not, and there's a, there is a discourse about control of resources and manufacturing and moving from primary commodities, but it's not uncoupled from a, a politics of celebrating humanity. In fact, those things are secondary um, to a restoring a sense of dignity, right? That, that people have been um, stripped of as a result of, of colonialism, imperialism, racism, and the enlightenment tradition of science, right? That gets used um, to, um, to destroy people. I mean, um, who are racialized as non-white. Um, and, and so I think, you know, so that's the, maybe the idealistic version of the Third Worldist Project, but I think there is something to recover about that idea of mobility and, and moving across borders and um, kind of respect for the human and for life in general, because that's the other, I mean, if you look at the NIEO declaration, there is a respect for life and, and for, um, agriculture, food, and so forth, not just as a commodity, but as something deeper than that. Um, yeah. I think that idealistic is a perfect place to end on. Um, so it is almost 2.15 and I did say we would end by then. So I do wanna thank our panelists. This was such a beautiful discussion. Um, I'm, I'm very grateful for you all being here with us today. Thank you for sharing your time and your expertise. Um, I do just wanna say that we do have a snit. I believe it's next week, iChat's next week, right? about Cuba and standing in solidarity with Cuba. Um, so you'll see flyers for that soon. Um, but if everyone could just give a hand to the speakers and um, thank you for all being here today. And thank you to the audience as well, of course. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I uh, me too. Uh, yeah, me too. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.